calculation ended in gunfire and death. The FBI has come in for a lot of scrutiny these days. A 2018 poll from Penn State University found that just 45% of political independents say they trust the FBI most or all of the time. Only 39% of Republicans, only 67% of Democrats trusted the agency. Over the past few years, those numbers are becoming even more stark thanks to the perception by Republicans that the FBI has been weaponized on behalf of the Democratic Party and against Donald Trump. But what is the FBI? What's it supposed to do? Do we even need it? This video is sponsored by our friends over at Birch Gold. Alrighty, so let's start at the very beginning. The FBI was born in 1908 because there were concerns across the country about state crime moving across state borders. Remember, the United States is a very, very large country. Most crime happens intrastate, right, inside each state. And so state criminal law typically covers that stuff. But as the country grows larger and more populous, now crimes are happening across the state lines. Virtually all law enforcement had been done to this point within state borders. There wasn't federal force with the power or ability to even really enforce the criminal law across state lines. So Teddy Roosevelt, who is a really nationalist, kind of big government thinker, his attorney general is a guy named Charles Bonaparte. Yes, actually related to Napoleon. He actually had to borrow Secret Service agents from the president to investigate federal crimes. Well, in May 1908, Congress steps in and they stop Bonaparte from doing even that. So Bonaparte, he's puzzled. He needs to focus in on crimes that are crossing state lines. So he actually just goes out without any congressional authorization and he hires nine Secret Service agents and 25 more agents and he puts them directly under him and then he has them coordinating with the DOJ. So that order was put out July 26th, 1908, and the FBI is usually dated from that period. So the first thing to recognize is that the FBI is established with no statutory authority. Now, later, Congress is going to rectify that. The aggressive executive branch under Teddy Roosevelt continues to authorize this stuff, and Bonaparte ended up leaving the administration after a few more months. The new attorney general is a guy named George Wickersham. He comes in, and he officially renames the investigative department the Bureau of Investigation. And just as with every single federal bureaucracy, eventually Congress does get involved, and then they're like, oh, well, this thing's already here. We may as well give it a bunch of money. So by 1915, we have moved from nine agents and 25 adjuncts to now three 300 employees working for the organization. Okay, so during World War I, this is really when the FBI starts to explode because it was handed the job by Woodrow Wilson of enforcing the Espionage Act and the Sabotage Act, supposedly fighting off foreign spies. Woodrow Wilson was very paranoid about spying in the homeland. He also happened to be kind of a fascist. And so he was using the FBI to crack down on political opponents as well. It sounds familiar. It should sound familiar. There's always been a battle since the very beginnings of the FBI between the political side of what the FBI does, namely, are they looking into political opponents? Are they going beyond their remit? and actually looking into crime. The unprofessionalism of the new force actually came to a head during the so-called Palmer Raids. The DOJ at this point was under a guy named A. Mitchell Palmer. His deputy was J. Edgar Hoover. They initiated a series of raids and arrests against communists. Now, to be fair, the raids did follow a series of bombings in 1919 by the communists. So again, as with pretty much everything in government, it's sort of a shaded story, right? In 1919, you get the Palmer Raids and they're directed against the communists. Okay, one of those bombings by the communists actually destroyed Palmer's home. The raids picked up hundreds of individuals who actually were associated with the Union of Russian Workers, and they were arrested. They even uncovered a bomb factory. So the threat was real. But as always, when it comes to national security and the growth of federal bureaucracy, they take a threat that's real and they blow it up beyond what's real. And then you end up moving beyond your remit. So in the end, thousands of people get arrested, many without just cause. Palmer said there were 300,000 communists in the United States. Palmer himself had ambitions toward the presidency inside the Democratic Party. By this point, Woodrow Wilson was no longer there mentally. And so there was a big fight on inside the Democratic Party, who was going to succeed him. Even early on, we we're talking about politicization of the new agency from like the very outset. The overreach was eventually discovered, led to the end of the raids. And then things got even worse. So in 1923, it turns out 
that the FBI had sent agents to spy on opposing members of Congress, which led to the ouster of the FBI's head and his replacement by J. Edgar Hoover, who then leads the agency for the next several decades. He actually did a good job of cleaning out the most politicized agents. He implemented a meritocratic hiring procedure, sort of a career bureaucrat. One of Hoover's great achievements was the consolidation of criminal records, right? This is why now when you look up criminal records federally, you're looking at the FBI records, right? When you look at how many murders are committed, it's the FBI gathering those records. Also, the FBI starts doing things like fingerprinting. They become more scientific. By 1929, the FBI is now the central clearinghouse for all stats, for all crime stats in the country, right? So all of that data is coming into the FBI. Now, at the very same time that the FBI is becoming more professional, they were handed a wonderful gift, prohibition. Prohibition happens, and suddenly, vast increase in violent crime, thanks to bootleggers and gangs, it's like the era of Al Capone, St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and all the rest. Local law enforcement was fully outgunned by the criminal underground, because local law enforcement was not national in scope. Many of these criminal enterprises were national in scope. And so the FBI becomes the tip of the spear in tracking down the most violent of these criminals. And so you get all of these very famous situations in which the FBI is tracking down like John Dillinger and the FBI is tracking down Bonnie and Clyde. And they're called G-Men. They're now national heroes with the congressionally approved ability to arm up and arrest. By the way, up until this point, the FBI isn't actually called the FBI. It's still the Bureau of Investigation. It wasn't until 1935 that you finally get the name FBI, right? That's, that's the point where Congress finally says this is called the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The FBI's victories over the criminal underground during Prohibition leads to, as always, expansion. Because once you have a bureaucracy in place, it just keeps expanding. So during World War II, FDR decides that the FBI needs to keep tabs on supposed communists and fascists, just like Woodrow Wilson did during World War I. So this was actually before the CIA even existed. So the FBI was also working with American embassies gathering information abroad. So the remit was actually super broad. The CIA later splits off because of legal issues about gathering evidence abroad and using it in domestic cases at home and all the rest of that sort of stuff. In the aftermath of the Pearl Harbor attacks on December 7, 1941, the FBI arrests almost 4,000 aliens in three days. You have to give Hoover credit for this. He did oppose the mass internment of Japanese Americans. FDR overruled him. But the FBI's main mission to prevent sabotage, it was largely a wild goose chase because there really weren't any serious acts of sabotage inside the United States. Nonetheless, during this period, the FBI continues to grow and spiral. By 1944, remember, it was big in 1915, right, when they went to 300 agents. Okay, now it is 1944. We are now up to 13,000 employees of the FBI. As always, the federal guy, I keep saying it over and over, every bureaucracy grows. The Cold War boosts the FBI even further, right? Americans are worried correctly about Soviet infiltration, ranging from Alger Hiss to the Rosenbergs. The FBI tracks down secret networks and works with the Army Signal Corps to uncover the so-called Venona telegrams. These were secret telegrams that they decoded. They unmasked hundreds of Soviet agents. It was at this point in history, the FBI was at its height in terms of public approval. The FBI has done a good job cracking down on the prohibition era criminality. It's cracking down at this point also on the mafia. It's fighting organized crime. It's fighting the communists. But then we hit what is really the turning point probably in all of American history in terms of faith in our institutions, and that is the 1960s. We'll get to more on the history of the FBI in just one second. First, if you've learned nothing from this video, what you should have learned is that you really shouldn't trust government agents. I mean, it's a serious problem. So this is why it's kind of a problem that the Biden administration recently announced its plan to hire 87,000 new IRS agents in 2023, many of whom will be bearing arms as they hunt for your money. You need to secure your savings in a tax-sheltered account right now. Birch Gold can help you do just that. Birch Gold Group helps you hold gold and silver in a tax-sheltered retirement account to protect you from big government tyranny. Plus, throughout history, gold has always been your best hedge against inflation. A diversified savings can protect you from downturns in the market. Text Ben to 989898. Birch 
Gold will send you a free information kit on diversifying into gold tax-free. Take the necessary steps to hedge against inflation today. Protect your hard-earned money. Get your free information kit by texting Ben to 989898 right now. Again, text Ben to 989898 to get started. Join my friends over at Birch Gold. They will help you get that free information kit on diversifying tax-free. Text Ben to 989898. So when we hit the 1960s, suddenly the FBI is now considered the movement of the establishment evil, and it's directed against the, re- the rebels we're going to fix America. The combination of left-wing tacit support for communists abroad, including in Vietnam, and the FBI's own failures and malfeasance during the civil rights era brought things to a head. Right? So, yes, the FBI screwed it up, and yes, America was moving to the left, and this combination really sinks faith in the FBI. The anti-Vietnam War movement was, in fact, at least in part, coordinated by communist movements from abroad. It also had tons of violence and radicalism, including terrorism. There were huge numbers of bombings throughout the 1960s and early 1970s. On race, the FBI was not to blame for hate crimes in the South leading up to the 1960s. The FBI literally had no statutory authority, for example, to go after lynching. Right now, lynching is a, a federal crime. But at the time, lynching was not a federal crime. Right? That's a very recent development, lynching being a federal crime. And there's big debate, you remember this, a few months ago over whether it needed to be a federal crime because after all, local police forces will do something about it. That debate should have been had in about 1950, right? maybe 1930, maybe 1890. Right? That's when that debate should have been had because you had states that actually were looking the other way on lynching. You needed federal forces to stop the lynching. In the aftermath of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the FBI has given massive new powers to enforce civil rights. But these powers then come into conflict with a rather uncomfortable fact, which is that some civil rights movement leaders had communist fellow travelers. This is one of the big stories about MLK, is that the FBI thought that MLK was actually a communist fellow traveler because of his economic program. He did have ties, not because he was like actually a communist agent, but he had ties with people who were, in fact, communists. All of this leads to the famous counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO. Right? This is a, a big buzzword that you'll see in sort of the Noam Chomsky left. This is the one that really, I think, undermines the credibility of the FBI almost for all time. The counterintelligence program was initiated by the National Security Council in 1956. It was designed to target the Communist Party, the Socialist Workers Party, and the KKK. Well, in 1971, an FBI office was burglarized. Documents were made public, and it became clear the FBI had, as always, exceeded its mandate. They tried to infiltrate groups that were not breaking the law. They tried to turn the members against each other. This included, for example, the surveillance of MLK. It also led to the monitoring of Fred Hampton, the Black Panther's leader who would be killed under highly controversial circumstances by the Chicago Police Department. In 1972, J. Edgar Hoover dies. At the same time, the FBI is falling into the confusion of Watergate because originally the FBI was accused of working with Nixon to do Watergate. And then, as it turns out, it was FBI Deputy Director Mark Felt who was actually deep-throat giving information to the press. All of this, all this chaos and, and institutional doubt leads to the first really serious oversight campaign against the FBI. So in 1973, the General Investigations Division reorganizes in order to monitor terrorists and other threats under the auspices of the National Security Division. In 1976, the so-called Church Committee in the Senate investigates the overreach of the FBI and the CIA. So by the time you get to the 70s, you got things like in 1973, reorganization of the FBI. In 1976, you have the Church Committee. In 1978, you have the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, right? When you hear about FISA warrants is what we're talking about. The idea here is that if you want to actually surveil people, you have to make sure that you have a warrant from a judge. Now, as it turns out, judges basically will just sign anything that says warrant on it. And that's a real problem, right? That's what came up during the 2016 election cycle with regard to Carter Page. By the 1980s, the mission has now shifted again. So there's been new legislation, there's new monitoring and all the rest. We now have a new mission because criminality always changed its form. So by the 1980s, you're talking about drugs, international terrorism. These are now the remits of the FBI. Maybe the most infamous action from the FBI during this period comes at Waco in 1993, when at the behest of Bill Clinton, the FBI invades the Branch Davidian complex, killing some 80 Americans in a conflagration 
on the scene. Again, whenever you have massive law enforcement and that incompetence is brought to bear, it typically does not end amazingly well. Meanwhile, the FBI is becoming more active in cooperating with other countries overseas. They're establishing dozens of offices abroad. This is largely because, again, you can see the FBI being in charge of international terrorism is weird. It really should be the CIA, right? But the FBI is involved because the idea is that this is actually a domestic law enforcement problem. And so this was also combined with the idea that we shouldn't take terrorism super seriously. It's kind of serious, but not super serious. Then, of course, you get September 11th, right? When September 11th happens, the FBI is given massive new surveillance powers by the Patriot Act. There are a lot of people at the time who are worried about this because they're like, wait, every time we give the FBI power, it, it exceeds its remit every single time. And they're right about that. At the same time, we do want to prevent the next 9-11. So the Patriot Act is put in place. The FBI begins reworking itself again as a big counterintelligence office in the mold of the original office with like a big mandate, like what they were doing in the 30s, going after communists, going after suspected fascists, going after sabotage. The FBI Joint Terrorism Task Forces explodes. I mean, it becomes huge. The FBI is now allowed to coordinate with the CIA, sharing a good deal of information, right? They're getting rid of what they called the Chinese wall between the FBI and the CIA, which prevented the sharing of information. That was designed originally to preserve the rights of Americans so you didn't have foreign intelligence information being used against American citizens. But it also prevented the sharing of information that would have prevented terrorist attacks. The FBI is now able to coordinate with local law enforcement in a much more powerful fashion, and they're doing a lot more international law enforcement. By the middle of the 2000s, it's fair to say the FBI is more powerful than it has ever been. By this point, by the middle of the 2000s, you're talking about greater than 20,000 employees. They have more employees than during World War II. They have a budget of over $10 billion a year. Right, this is a large budget. The FBI is directly responsible to the AG. Its activities are now overseen by the Director of National Intelligence. So, how well did the FBI do in the post-9-11 era? Well, I mean, listen, we didn't have a major terror attack on American soil inside the United States, so it's hard to prove a negative. It's hard to prove that the FBI stopped a lot that happened during that period. But here's the thing. The left used to worry in the 60s that the generalized mission and powers of the FBI threatened civil liberties. That is now a worry on the right. And that is due to the shift toward using the FBI as a political tool, particularly during the Russian collusion investigation against Donald Trump's campaign. Right? 2016 is the part where all of these sort of political priors break down. Right? If you look at the history of the FBI, it's typically been the right that's saying we need law enforcement. We need to make sure the criminals go to jail. We need to make, give the FBI the power to do what it needs to do. And it's the left saying, wait, civil liberties, guys, civil liberties. Then in 2016, as with nearly everything else on planet Earth, everything seemed to change dramatically. So 2016, this is when everything seems to reverse. And that is because the FBI uses a trumped-up FISA warrant to target Trump campaign aide Carter Page. The FBI uses the Steele dossier as a predicate for the broader Mueller investigation. You have FBI agents like Peter Strzok and Lisa Page who are screwing each other while they're married, openly texting one another about taking out insurance plans against Donald Trump's presidency. Yet the Mueller investigation is spending tens of millions of dollars on a far-fetched conspiracy theory that Trump had basically worked hand-in-glove with Vladimir Putin to rig the 2016 election. And then you have the FBI director, James Comey, working the Steele dossier into public view, turning it over to Trump and leaking that news to the news outlets so that they would then print that, also changing the status of the law regarding storing of classified information, letting Hillary Clinton off the hook. Right? So by this point, the right is like, okay, the deep state is there. All the worries about the FBI are real. We agree. But now is what the left goes, wait, no, no, no. Now we trust the FBI. These guys, they're doing the right thing. I mean, Donald Trump must have done something. So as always, the way that Americans feel about a particular institution depends almost wholly on where they stand in partisan fashion about what the institution is doing today. Very few people have sort of a consistent view of what the powers ought to be and how they ought to be curtailed and how they ought to be consistently applied. Okay, now, today, obviously, we have reached 2022 and we have the FBI raid on Donald Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago on the theory that he has classified documents he didn't turn over to the National Archives. So we, we still don't know what the real reason is behind the FBI raid. We've been told by A.G. Merrick Garland that we should trust that the FBI is not politically motivated. 
But that ignores the biggest question in all of this, right? A massive agency, tens of thousands of agents, and you've spent tens of billions of dollars over the course of the history of the FBI. This is an agency with extraordinary powers to look into your life, to, to monitor you, to find out what you're doing on a daily basis. So that's always going to be subject to the political vicissitudes of the people at the top. And whoever is the president is going to have some impact on that. Whoever is staffing the FBI at any given point is going to have some impact on that. So the real question for the FBI always and forever is how do we draw a balance between law enforcement and the ability to misuse law enforcement? How do we draw lines around the necessary ability of the FBI to actually suss out criminals and protect American citizens? And these are policy questions. They're also questions that tend to be completely ignored by policymakers because as Congress has moved into a vestigial organ of government, just throwing all responsibility over to the executive branch, all we keep hearing is trust us. But you shouldn't trust any of these people in any regulatory agency, including the FBI, particularly the FBI. Because again, they have extraordinary power over you, which means it's not about defunding the FBI or getting rid of the FBI. It's about how do we make sure that the FBI is capable of doing actual law enforcement and how do we punish them for exceeding their writ, exceeding their mandate? This is not a question just for 2022. This has been a question since literally 1908. And it's going to continue to be a question so long as human beings are flawed and so long as they're given inordinate powers to go after both political opponents on the one hand and criminals on the other. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 